2022 has been a year of eye-opening revelations for all of us, and journalists have worked doggedly throughout the year to report on the stories behind the headlines. News24 has been at the forefront of a number of headline-grabbing investigations, holding government to account and working tirelessly to expose corruption. This week on The Story, we take a look at some of News24's top investigative stories during the past year. We'll also take a look at how the headlines impact the economy and what the outlook is for South Africans. I'm Catherine Rice, a multimedia journalist for News24, and you're listening to The Story. This week, we're talking to News24 Assistant Editor for Investigations, Peter Detoy, and later on, we'll talk to News24's Deputy Editor for Business, Ahmed Arif. Peter, thanks so much for your time. News 24 Investigations has had a bumper year. One of the investigations that really stands out is Jeff Wicks's series of stories on the assassination of whistleblower Babita Diokaran. How did that all start? How did the team get access to documents and cell phone records? And how long did it take before publishing that first story? Catherine, yes. I mean, I've, I think it's it's easily the most significant story that we've done this year um, on one level. I think it recognizes the work that Babita Diokaran did as a whistleblower. And it's a it's a monument to what she what she gave her life for. And on another level, it is, of course, like you said in your intro, uh, an attempt to keep the authorities accountable, an attempt to keep them on their toes and, and an attempt to, to force them to act. So uh, the gist of the, of the investigation done by the News24 investigations team in which Jeff uh, took the lead was, was that Babitia Diokaran identified almost 850 million rands in dodgy payments made by the, Nash, or the Provincial Department of Health from Tembisa Hospital into an array of companies for services, by and large, that were never delivered. Now, immediately, it, it raises a ton of red flags. Why were these contracts awarded to companies that did not deliver services? Who received the money? Who scored off this? Who won off this? And the, the investigation took eight months, I would argue. We, we started immediately after Babita Diokran was murdered in August of 2021. She was killed one terribly cold winter's morning on the high felt when, when she was shot outside of her house after she dropped off her child. And we started looking at the, the circumstances surrounded, surrounding that murder. And obviously the first port of call was to identify the murderers, which, which was done very quickly after they were arrested, but then to go and find out where these murderers came from. And in actual fact, we, Catherine, we hit a brick wall earlier this year because we traced the murderers back to the same valley in northern KwaZulu-Natal, uh, the assassins uh, that come from the same area outside of Vienen in KwaZulu-Natal. And we couldn't, you know, we, we got some biographical details from them, but, you know, they, they pulled the triggers, but they weren't the, the originators of the hit on Babita Diokaran. They didn't give the instructions. And, and, and they, you know, apart from being paid an assassin's fee, they didn't really benefit a lot from Babita Diokaran's murder. So, so we hit a brick wall then. But, you know, as so often happens in investigations, you have to do a lot of groundwork and put yourself out there before the tips and the information comes rolling in from the public. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. After we started publishing detail of the murderers, detail emerging from, from their first couple of court appearances, 
we were contacted by whistleblowers saying, look, we've, we might have some more information for you. And that's how we came across information that was on kept on Babita's laptop, on her cell phone. Uh, we started working through the data dump, which was quite significant and quite large, hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes of data. And we were able to piece together her last month of, of on this earth, Catherine. We were able to piece together a lot from her private life because we had access to very personal and, uh, and, and private messages. But more important than that, we were able to piece together what she identified as being possibly criminal and, and, and illegal and possibly corrupt. Thanks to the numerous reports she started writing to her superiors, thanks to WhatsApp messages in which she, she explained to her, uh, her superiors what she found and how concerned she was with with uh, the fact that uh, such a lot of of taxpayers money was being used uh, in 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 seemingly illegal deals so it took a heck of a long time it took uh, hundreds of man hours if uh, you know hundreds of man hours to to trawl through the data that we have to try and piece together a picture and, and finally we were able to do that and I'm I'm pretty certain of the fact that we that this year we, we could quite confidently report why Babita Diokaran was murdered and she was murdered because she identified networks of extraction from Tembisa Hospital siphoning out millions and millions of rands for services that were never delivered, stealing public money and obviously putting people who are dependent on the services of Tembisa Hospital, those people's lives in danger. There's still a heck of a long way to go. As I said earlier, I'm I'm very confident that we've now gotten to the root cause of why she was murdered. Because the moment that you step on these networks of inst- of extraction, these these pipes leading out from these uh, government departments and the hospitals that that simply shovel money out of the system, the moment that those systems are throttled, those networks are throttled, they hit out. And they certainly hit out in in, in quite a violent way against Babita Diokaran. So I'm confident we've gotten to the root of it, but we have not yet exacted accountability, Catherine. And Peter Eskom, that's also another top investigation done by your team. Carl Cowan did some outstanding work. Can you tell us more? More about those stories and whether there have been some consequences in, in terms of the fallout from those investigations. Yes, well, a couple of weeks ago in November, or was it end of October? It was end of October. One of the biggest arrests of the year took place when Marcella Coco, who is the former acting group chief, chief executive of ESCOM, was nabbed by the investigative directorate uh, on charges, various charges of corruption, fraud, and money laundering to the tune of more than 38 million rand. So that was quite satisfying to see someone being arrested on a story that we've been working on for for more than a year. I'm not saying that it was directly related to it, but we have exposed over the last year or more a lot of the internal possibly illegal machinations at ESCOM in which Marcello Coco was was certainly an integral part of. So ESCOM remains a massive story because we all are affected by load shedding every single day. It affects the poor and the rich uh, in equal measure and it has certainly had an enormously 
damaging effect on the country's economy, losing millions and billions of rands every every day that there's load shedding. So the ESCOM story has not gone away. You'd recall that in 2021, we launched a big project called the ESCOM Files, also based on a, a trove of documents that we were given access to. So, so we are still reporting on ESCOM. We are still reporting on what's happening inside of ESCOM. But I, I, I do think that the story has now moved a little bit away from the investigative environment, more into the political realm, because the politicians now have to make policy changes in order for ESCOM to get more uh, generating capacity on the grid. That unfortunately is happening too slowly. We have seen some private renewable energy producers come on, to str- come on stream this year or busy coming on stream, but the ESCOM problem is not going away. And, you know, unfortunately, every time that we that we delve into ESCOM, you know, we, we are again shocked by the, the, the scope and the size of the problems at ESCOM and certainly the, the breadth and the depth of corruption at ESCOM that, that has taken place over a number of years and has caused caused lasted damage, Catherine, and damage that we are all suffering under every time that there is uh, there is load shedding. It's something that impacts every single one of us, as you said. But Peter, for you, what were some of the most important stories your team was able to uncover, other than the Dear Karen and ESCOM stories? What's what stands out for you? So Zara Karim has has also, uh, she's one of our investigative reporters, she started digging into the city of Johannesburg. And I live in Johannesburg, like many of our News24 colleagues do. And, and, and it's, it remains, in my, in my view, the, the grandest city in the country. But it really is suffering under poor management. And it's suffered under a succession of very weak metro councils, very weak political sets of political leadership. And we are now seeing the, the, the results of that. We've we've had serious water cuts in Johannesburg this year, something that I know Cape Tonians have also suffered under because of the drought a couple of years ago. But we are suffering under water cuts because of poor management, poor maintenance, pretty much what happened at, at, at ESCOM. Uh, we've seen bad financial management. And what Zara Karim has now started doing in a series called City of Crooks is to try and delve, and, and she has started to delve into more corruption at the city, which which also leads to poor service delivery. The mo- You know, there's a, there's an argument from many of these crooks that say that, that corruption is a victimless crime because no one dies, no one gets injured. It's only money and services that are stolen, but it's normal uh, law-abiding citizens of the city, most often poor citizens of the city who suffer under corruption because services aren't delivered. So so Azara's delved into that. She started with uh, the Metro Police. She started with the Department of Safety, showing that millions of rands over the last couple of years in various instances have been misappropriated and has had a direct impact on the safety and the security of, of Joburg citizens. So I think that's very important work, especially going into uh, an election period. And Peter, what does it take to actually do these investigations? I'm guessing a lot of patience and hours and hours of hard work. Exactly that, Catherine. I think we are very lucky at News24 where um, there is large investment in, in investigations, not only in terms of resources, but also in terms of time. You know, we, we don't try to to ripen stories ahead of its time. So we do try to take as much time on a specific story uh, or on the investigative stories that we do. You know, we did a long investigation into Pala Pala, while the, the president's farm where where uh, apparently $600,000 was stolen. But we had to take time 
on it to get to the bottom of it as far as we can whilst there was massive noise and gray noise all around us. So it is about keeping a balance between moving as quickly as you can but taking enough time to make sure that what you publish you can back up and is supported by evidence. I can tell you every time we publish a, a big story my stomach is in a knot and I don't sleep the night before because the repercussions to News24's reputation, your reputation as a reporter and the possible legal repercussions are quite significant. So, so it does take patience and it takes time but we are lucky to work in an environment where, where the value of investigative journalism is certainly uh, recognized and, 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 and supported by the editor and by the company. The investigations team's work is on the site under special projects. A lot of it is award-winning and it's really, really worth a read. Thank you so much, Peter. We're now joined by Deputy Editor for News 24 Business, Ahmed Arif. Ahmed, the kind of headlines we've just been talking about with Peter often impact the economy. What were some of the stories this year that really had a negative effect? ESCOM is obviously the biggest one. You know, for years, credit rating agencies have said the company is the single largest risk to South Africa's economy. The first aspect of of that risk being load shedding. And this year, we've had the worst levels of load shedding ever. But the second aspect is uh, ESCOM's astronomical debt. The SOE is basically nearly half a trillion rand in the hole. And now government has decided to put some of that debt on its own books, though it hasn't really said how much yet, uh, and the specifics of that debt relief still have to be finalized. But sticking with SOEs, there was a bit of a scare with the roughly two-week transnet strike recently, especially about how it impacted things at our ports, where you know important goods are coming in, and where our local farmers are shipping some of our fruit to other countries, for example. And the worry was that we would lose billions a day. Luckily, it didn't go on until things became that dire. But before all of this, the mining sector lost about 50 billion rand over the course of this year because of transnet issues. And we want the mining sector to make lots of money because the mining sector pays a lot of taxes. And we've relied on them for some of those windfalls that have allowed government to do things like extend the social relief of distress grant, which, by the way, is also something that needs a permanent solution or it's going to bite us. But Ahmed, you know, this the unemployment levels, they just really are at record highs. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Are there any positive signs that things are improving? So with unemployment, the official rate is 33.9% for the second quarter of this year. But the expanded unemployment rate, which includes those job seekers who've just basically given up looking for work, is about 44.1%. So that's that's nearly 50%. That's nearly half the country that's unemployed. The, The good news, though, is that those figures are actually lower than the first quarter of this year. And the first quarter was lower than the last quarter of the previous year, 2021, which is the highest on the record. So there's been some improvement and we're doing better than economists expect us to be doing. But a few experts, including from the advisory board to Stats SA, say that these stats could could actually be wrong. You know, uh, less people are responding to surveys than before and Stats SA has had to switch the way it collects data, especially in the midst of COVID. 
So there is reason to believe that these current numbers, while they could are getting better, could actually be wrong. You know, given everything that's happened in the country, uh, including this, a lot of things don't paint us in an attractive way for companies that want to invest in South Africa. You know, we need new projects, new developments. There need to be new operations. And all of those things translate into more jobs. President Cyril Maposa said at his State of the Nation address at the beginning of the year that government does not create jobs, business does. There was obviously a bit of a kerfuffle about that, but the thing he did acknowledge was that if we want business to create jobs, government needs to cut all the red tape around that. They need to create an environment that fosters business and allows business to to grow and by, by that nature to have more jobs. We just have to see how all of that works out. But again, the biggest driver of jobs all in all is is economic growth. Just recently, the deputy SA Reserve Bank Governor, Shad Kassam, said that our economy needs to expand consistently at about 5% for years and years to create jobs and lower this crazy bonkers unemployment rate. It's a very scary situation and it, it continues to seemingly get worse. What are your predictions for what next year holds in terms of load shedding? Um, do you think things will get worse before they get better? So look, as I mentioned, we had stage bad load shedding this year, stage six twice. And I think we're in for much, much more stage six or possibly even higher in the next year. Most estimates say that the economy loses about 500 million rand per load shedding stage per day. So stage six costs the economy roughly about 3 billion rand a day. Businesses can't function, commerce falls exponentially, and the wheels of industry kind of grind to a halt. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that, and the economy is going to lose a lot more money. The president did unveil his big energy plan this year, which included opening up the market for more private generation. So while there could be more private solar or wind power feeding the grid, that's not going to happen immediately. In fact, it's expected to take at least another year for all of those things to come online. You know, it's the same with the government's renewable energy uh, IPP procurement program. It's always a mouthful. And in that time, there will still be a massive shortfall of capacity on the grid. And Given the poor state of our power stations, where no maintenance has was done for a very long time, and the shockingly poor quality of work in building Kusile and Madupi power stations, there's there going to be a lot more generating units that trip, which ultimately means more load shedding. Also, on top of that, we have more lo- more power stations reaching the end of their lifespan, so that's another gap in capacity, and again, possibly more load shedding. At least the the current ownership. Well, the current leadership, sorry, of ESCOM has been pursuing a strong maintenance program and are, and are trying to sort of repurpose these com- decommissioned plants into lots of jobs for people who used to work there and, and to make them uh, generate renewable energy. So hopefully we're going to see some of that start paying off and possibly providing some stability down the line. But I, but I don't think it looks good for us for next year. Ahmed, that was actually my next question. Do you think the economy is in the worst shape it's ever been? And when do you think we'll start actually turning the corner? 
I'm, I'm a miserable pessimist, so I, I, I think things are going to get really bad. Look, we're in, we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis. You know, Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine, and then the entire world is turned upside down. Uh, there's rocketing fuel and food prices. There's major interest rate hikes with probably more on the way, especially for us. And then there's this big threat of a looming global recession. But I'd like to... Th- Focus on on how the finance minister sees all of this, you know, and let's look to what he said in his uh, recent medium term budget. So the, the the bad news is government debt is really bonkers. I mean, we went from 577 billion in 2007-2008 to an ex- uh, estimated 4.75 trillion this year. But you know, and due to interest costs going higher, the cost of repaying all of that debt will be about six billion rand more than government expected to pay in the February budget. But on the flip side, to that, tax income is high, uh, mostly thanks to high commodity prices, which have delivered nice big profits to mining companies, like I mentioned earlier. So in in the current year. Uh, gross tax revenue is about estimated to be 93 billion rand higher than what was expected in the February budget, which is about 84 billion rand more than what we had last year. And on top of that, we had corporate tax that's expected to be 62.8 billion above budget. So apart from high mining taxes, manufacturing and finance companies are also making higher profit, which is what Treasury is telling us. So with all of that, Treasury expects that by the end of 2023-2024, which is the next financial year, government revenue will exceed its spending, uh, excluding the interest payments, for about the first time in 15 years. So our gross loan debt is also going to probably stabilize at about 71%, 71.4% of GDP this year two and a half years earlier and at a lower level than everyone kind of expected. And our budget deficit is also going to narrow uh, from 4.9% of GDP in 2022-2023 to about 3.2% of GDP in 2025-2026. So whether this will actually continue and whether we can actually maintain this, we just have to wait and see. Government has been a bit more conservative and it has been trying to ease the pressure and being a bit more and consolidating the fiscus a bit. Looks like it's working. It was a very positive budget. Like I said, I don't know. I'm I'm a bit pessimistic, but let's hope that government can actually pull this off. That was Ahmed Aref, News24 Deputy Editor for Business. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Catherine Rice, and you're listening to The Story.